Of all the episodes that I have recorded over the years, this one will be perhaps the most unique one. For one, it's going to be released simultaneously on all six channels that I am fortunate enough to host. The Parsha Podcast, the Jewish History Podcast, the Mitzvah Podcast, This Jewish Life, the Ethics Podcast, Torah 101, and on the channel that hosts all my podcasts in one feed, all Rabbi Yaakov Wolby Podcasts. This is the first time I've done this. And the reason for this is that I wanted to share a momentous achievement with all the listeners, but also to tell you a bit of my own personal story. A couple of days ago, the podcasts reached a major milestone. We crossed over a million downloads. Now, the month of August was also the month that saw the most downloads of any month since I began teaching via podcasts in January of 2013. And thank God, the momentum is fabulous. When I started podcasting, I never dreamed that it would become so big and it would have such a seismic global impact. So I wanted to publicly thank the Almighty and, of course, the listeners for the tremendous blessing that this had become. And I also wanted to share a bit of my own personal story. And I'm going to speak quite frankly and personally and from the heart and tell you how I got here. Over the course of the more than 900 episodes, I've told many personal stories. But today I'm going to tell a little bit of the bash story. I'm pretty sure I've never told this publicly. Now, I wasn't even sure if this was the right thing to do to bear myself to make myself vulnerable in front of the audience. And now for a few weeks, I've been vacillating back and forth whether or not I should even do it and how much should I say. So I'm sitting right now at the Torch Center. There's no one here. I figured, let's go for it. Let me just share what I'm thinking. And maybe I won't release it. If you're hearing it, obviously, I decided to indeed publish it. But understand, if this is not interesting for you, if you want to just skip this episode and go to the regular programming, I totally understand. I want to begin by thanking the Almighty for all the blessings that He has bestowed upon me and upon my family and how He has shepherded me until this point. And the Torah tells us that there's a specific way of how we are supposed to thank God. There's a principle that whenever you thank God, you start from the shameful, from the lowly beginnings, and only in the end do you end with praise. To properly thank God, we have to give context. Before you talk about the good times, you have to speak about the bad times that preceded it. So, for example, we just read in this passage Parsha, how when someone brings Bikurim, you bring the first fruits to Jerusalem, you have this lengthy declaration, you talk about the bad origins of the Jewish people, how we had Laban tried to destroy us, we went to Egypt, we were enslaved, things were terrible, and only then, after you talked about the shameful beginnings, the shameful origins, only then do you mention, well, we had a miraculous exodus, and we got to Jerusalem, and now we have the first fruits, and the like. So here I am, taking, if you will, a victory lap, celebrating this major milestone with the podcast family, and I too, when I'm thanking the Almighty, I want to reflect on how I got here. It has not been an easy or smooth ride to get to this point. 
perhaps we can say it's been a really rough road to get here. You know, for the past few weeks, thinking about what I'm going to say here, I've been reminiscing on my childhood and the various struggles that I had to endure. And to put it bluntly, I was a difficult child. I had enormous struggles socially and certainly academically. And I'm sharing this both as a way to accentuate my thanks to the Almighty, but I think it could also provide some hope, some comfort to parents who feel helpless if they have a child that exhibits similar tendencies. Maybe my story could be an inspirational one for those people. I was a dreadful student in school. I had, I must have had some sort of dyslexia. I did not have an easy time reading, especially Hebrew. I had advanced hyperactivity. Certainly today I would be diagnosed with ADHD, ADD, and maybe sedated to docility with all kinds of drugs. From a very young age, I exhibited fierce recalcitrance, fierce resistance to authority. And the truth is that I still do. I just learned how to mask it and how to be accommodating to societal norms. But I was a tough kid. I was a bratty kid, maybe even somewhat of a bully. When I was in second and third grade, my parents lived in Israel. They moved to Israel for two years for like a sabbatical of sorts. And apparently... I used to harass the neighborhood kids. That's what they tell me. There's one story that my parents used to always say, how uh, I must have harassed some kid in the neighborhood. I don't remember any of this. But uh, apparently this is true. I must have harassed some kid in the neighborhood. And his mom comes into our apartment. We lived in Jerusalem at the time. And she comes in brandishing a, a kitchen knife. Let me get that kid. And apparently she said to my mother, you should put him on a leash. So my mother, she should live and be well. She responded calmly, I'm, I'm sorry, he's not a dog. My parents would always tell me, I don't know how much of this is embellished. They used to say, I was such a neighborhood terror. When I would walk the streets, they would clear. There was, they would part the streets like the splitting of the sea as if I was some mafiosa. I was a problem kid. Other parents used to say, hey, don't play with that kid, with the Wolby kid. He's a bad influence. It wasn't just societally that I struggled. Formalized schooling was a nightmare for me. Surviving class, it was an incredibly painful experience. It's almost like you're sitting down at your, it's nine o'clock and you have to be there till like 11 and the clock just doesn't want to move. Classes just weren't interesting to me. It was not a stimulating environment. The saving grace of school was recess. A couple of years ago, I was in my parents' home in New York and I was perusing some of my old report cards. And I remember reading in, in fifth grade, the teacher wrote, Yaakov has not produced a single stitch of work this semester. And I don't think that was limited to fifth grade. I was just a disastrous student. I'm thinking back now, I don't remember doing homework even once. And I was incredibly hyperactive, not interested in academics, certainly not the way it was taught in school. One of my educators used to say about me, he's so wild 
and unmanageable, it's almost like you don't have control over your limbs. They're just flailing about, flying in every direction. My seventh grade teacher said to my parents, and I must confess this is not entirely inaccurate, Yaakov sits like a fetus in class. Apparently, I used to put my feet on top of the table as a way to cope, I guess, with the experience. And listen, it's not fun to think about this, but it's true. I had a hard time reading. And it's kind of embarrassing to not be able to to read when everyone else does it so easily. I remember once in seventh grade, I was asked to read something out loud. And I was trying to mumble and bumble my way through. It was a total disaster. And someone said, aha, I finally discovered the problem with this kid. He doesn't know how to read. I remember once even in ninth grade in Yeshiva High School, the students were asked to read out loud. And it was just so embarrassing that I had misread some of the words and I had to be corrected about that in public. Now, in high school, so I went to Yeshiva High School, thank God. And my family, there was one particular yeshiva that our family, we had all gone to the same yeshiva. All my siblings had gone to the same yeshiva. So that was the yeshiva that I was supposed to go to, right? Now, I was quite nervous for the interview because what if they don't like me? What if they don't accept me? And I remember someone telling me, of course they'll accept you. You come from a great family. You have the right name. You have a prestigious rabbinic lineage. But I was nervous. And the interview was predictably a disaster. I used to like to doodle in my Gemara, my book of Talmud. And it was pretty aggressive doodling to the degree that some of the pages were missing. And what do you know? You bring your Gemara, you bring your book, and you're being interviewed by the rabbis, the heads of this yeshiva. And they happen to ask you a question on a piece of Talmud that was missing from your book. I remember saying, oops, I happen to not have that page in my book, so I had to show them that doodled and tattered book, and they're like, okay, just just use ours. But ultimately, they said, okay, this kid's just not for us. Now, remember, at this time, my grandfather's still alive, and he's one of the most famous and influential rabbis in the world, and he tries to get him to change your mind. So he writes this glowing recommendation letter. My grandson, Yaakov, is so intelligent and capable. He's going to have a very bright future. To no avail. And spoiler alert, this is not the first unsuccessful recommendation letter that he wrote on my behalf. Actually, in preparation for this podcast, I tried to find in my archives, I had an envelope that contained four letters of recommendation that were written on my behalf to four different yeshivos. And each one of them, those letters didn't work out. But I think, looking back in retrospect, I'm better for it. In each instance, I ended up in a much better yeshiva and things worked out. Now, my schooling took an unusual turn in 12th grade. I skipped 12th grade and went straight to yeshiva in Israel, which is somewhat unusual. But my grandfather, a blessed memory, he believed that there was one yeshiva in Israel that was the best yeshiva in the world. It was a small boutique yeshiva that really worked with the guys and it was run by some of his students. So he says, okay, you're going to go to that yeshiva. I was very excited. At the age of 16, packed my badge and moved to Israel. 
And coincidentally, my parents also moved to Israel at the time, and they lived there for four years. Now, this yeshiva, even though I did fairly well in it, it didn't really work out. I was an American kid, and I liked sports, and I liked playing ball. And I'm coming to this Israeli yeshiva, and everyone there is very serious about about studying. And, you know, I wanted to play a little bit more. It didn't really work out. And it wasn't so clear to anyone that I had a bright future in Torah. I remember I received that year some well-intentioned advice. Someone told me, hey, clearly Talmud and Torah is just not for you. Go to law school. You could probably get into Yale Law School. Become a lawyer. At least something good will come out of you. That didn't happen. But I tried to go to a different yeshiva, another yeshiva that I will not name to protect the innocent. But this is one of the premier yeshivas in Israel. And again, remember, my grandfather still alive at the time, and he's one of the most venerated rabbis in the world. And he writes this amazing letter lauding me to the heads of that yeshiva. I don't have the letter in front of me. I tried to find it, couldn't find it. I remember one line that he wrote. He's like, I want to thank you in advance for accepting my grandson. Not only did they not accept me, they refused to grant me an interview. So I'm 17 years old and I'm looking for yeshiva. So the Russian yeshiva, the head of the yeshiva of the other institution, the small boutique institution, he had a relative who had a yeshiva in a city in New Jersey. So he says, you know what, I'm going to call up my relative and I'm going to write another letter of recommendation for you. Why don't you go to that yeshiva? Go back to the United States, go to that yeshiva, you'll do well there. So, okay, great. Sounds like it's a plan. I get back on a plane. Again, my parents are still in Israel. And I fly back to the United States. It's time to go to this new yeshiva, the yeshiva that is ran by the cousin of my former Rosh Yeshiva. Now I'm under the impression that, you know, these relatives worked it out together. I'm in. I actually had some friends who went to that particular yeshiva in New Jersey that remain unnamed. And I said to them, oh, I have good news. I'm coming to the same yeshiva. And that's great. My parents are in Israel, right? So I got to find a ride to get this yeshiva. So they say, okay, well, we're going the first day of the semester. You could come along with us. So I remember there was a whole group of guys from this yeshiva. And I have my backpacks and my suitcases and all my worldly possessions and a couple of suitcases. And I'm heading down the turnpike or heading down the Garden State Thruway. And we're going to this yeshiva. Things are great. So we get there and... The students say, okay, I want to take good care of you. Don't worry about it. They found me a dorm room. Things are great. So I remember we were studying. I, I took my book of Talmud. I sat down at the base medrash into the study hall. I hadn't yet met the head of the yeshiva, the, the cousin or the relative of my former yeshiva. So he walks into the base medrash. This is the first day. I've been there for a half hour. And he calls me into his office and he says to me, I'm sorry. It's just not going to work out. I said, what do you mean it's not going to work out? He's like, ah, it's not going to work out. I was under the impression that I was in, I was accepted to this yeshiva. But he said, no, no, he doesn't want me there. So he's like, okay, good luck. I had to go back to this dorm room that I inhabited for a few minutes, pick up my suitcases, and I'm on my own. I think that might have been the nadir of my life up to this point. I'm stranded in this bleak city in New Jersey. My whole family is 6,000 miles away. I'm just booted from the yeshiva I thought I was going to, kicked out to the pavement, me and my 
meager suitcases and what now? This is even before Uber. I'm just, I'm just stuck. So a few miracles happened to me that day and things actually ended up very well for me. I'm just, you know, thinking about this now. It's, it's kind of bringing back to me what it was like. I ended up in a different yeshiva in the United States. Spent a half a year there. And then I didn't like it that much. It wasn't a great fit. I tried to go to a different yeshiva in the United States. They too didn't want me, notwithstanding more letters of recommendation that were in my behalf. And eventually, at the age of 18 and about three months, I think, I ended up back in Israel going to the flagship Mir Yeshiva, the greatest and largest yeshiva in the world. I was, if not the youngest student in the entire yeshiva, a yeshiva of thousands upon thousands of students. I may have been, if there was one, maybe there was one kid who was younger than me. But normally people come there when they're 20, when they're 21, they're more veteran students. A couple of months past my 18th birthday, I ended up in the Mir, in the Mir Yeshiva. And I feel like during those years, I kind of got my act together and, you know, started, started really doing well. We had two great years of the year. I managed to study under the greatest Torah teacher in the world, Rabbi Asharieli. Thank God we flourished really nicely. At the age of 20, I made the best decision of my life and I got married. And that's a little bit young by any standards, but I don't regret it for a second. And I uh, spent five more years in Israel studying in, in both the Mir, I was in Asia Torah for a little bit, until we moved to Houston to join the staff at Torch, and we've been here now for eight and a half years. So these are some of the stories of my youth, and there's more stories along the way. Maybe we'll save them for another time, maybe for an episode titled, dare I say, Thanks 2 Million? But looking back at this long journey... I think I could say definitively, every one of those yeshivas that I wanted to get accepted to, the Almighty knew it wasn't the best place for me. Of course, at the time, it's not very pleasant to think about it. But I feel now, looking back, it's clear to me that the Almighty was navigating me through the labyrinthine maze of my adolescence, nudging me, holding my hand, and positioning me to be able to fulfill my purpose. Now, forgive me if what I'm about to tell you sounds boastful or gloating. I'm just trying to be honest with you. I have this deep sense that I am doing exactly what the Almighty created me to do. I remember even as a kid, I used to dream of being a radio host. I wanted to be a broadcaster. People told me, you know, you can't be a broadcaster. You have a speech impediment. I didn't speak about that, but I did have one. You'll never be able to do it. Now, in all fairness, I also predicted I would play basketball professionally. That didn't happen. But I do feel that right now, in the position that I'm in and doing what I'm doing, I'm really doing exactly what the Almighty wants of me. And I'm utilizing all the tools that He gave me. And there's nothing quite as sublime as being able to invest your life into something that you have a deep sense that that's the reason why you were created by the Almighty. I think it's apropos to tell the famous story of the Nitziv. The Nitziv is Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. He was the 
head of the famed Volusian yeshiva in the 19th century, when he published his first work, Hamet Shaila, which is the commentary on the Sheiltos of Rabbi Choy Gon, he said that when he was a young child, his parents were disappointed with him. They thought, you know, he's not studying well and you know, why are we wasting so much time investing in this in this child as if he's going to study and become a Torah scholar? Let's make him a shoemaker. That would be even better. And he remembers overhearing this conversation and that kind of triggered him. That was the impetus for him to get serious. I don't want to be a shoemaker, he said to himself. I want to be a Torah scholar. So he stopped playing around and he stopped being juvenile and he dedicated himself to Torah study. And then, when he published his first book, a uh, magisterial work on the Sheiltos of Rabbi Chaydon, he said over, he's like, what would have happened if I didn't hear my parents saying that? I come to heaven after being a shoemaker, a long life, maybe be a good, hopefully good, honest Jew, but a shoemaker. And the Almighty will say to me, or would have said to me, where is your Hamachayla? Where is your book, Hamid Shaila? Book? I never wrote any book. That's what I would have told him, said the Nitziv. What is this Sheiltos? Who was Rav Achai Gon, the author of this book? And he was sharing this idea that there's this great feeling of fulfillment to know that you're maximizing or that you're fulfilling what the Almighty wants you to do. And who knows how history could have been different and you could have not done what the Almighty wanted you or expected of you. So I think it's fitting for me sitting over here. Of course, it it's a great feeling to say or to, to know that you've been able to spread Torah to all across the world, every one of the 50 states and territories and 180 countries worldwide. And to know that you've had such a big impact, a million downloads, isn't that amazing? 43 plus thousand downloads in the month of August. You have to thank God. Talmud tells us that truthfully, we have to thank God with every breath. You take a breath, you have to thank God. My Rebbe, Rabbi Asherel, used to say, if you have to thank God for every breath, how much more so must you thank God for a breath of Torah, for an elevated breath, for someone who's able to live for a higher purpose? Certainly, if we have the great fortune and merit to be a conduit, to teach Torah to the world, to be a resource to so many Jews all over the world, to help them to reconnect their heritage, all the more so we have to thank the Almighty for his unending goodness. And I think, again, this is me speaking personally, and you'll forgive me if it sounds hubristic. I want to thank the Almighty for positioning me to do precisely what aligns with my innate character and to be able to have my wellsprings sprout forth to the world. I think about the verse in Psalms. King David says, Who is like Hashem our God? All the way on the highest of highs, who, so to speak, lowers himself to the earth the Almighty, of course, you would imagine, could be involved in much more spiritual things than us lowly men. But what does he do? 
He takes up the poor and lifts him from the dust. He takes the needy from the trash heap and lifts him up and makes them be with the great men, the great men of his people. I truly feel like the words of David applied to me. And again, please forgive me if this sounds like I'm boasting. I'm just trying to be honest with y'all. I do feel looking back on my story and my life hitherto, that the Almighty uplifted me from the trash heap and helped me to become someone who's able to spread Torah in an incredible way and, thank God, making an unbelievable impact. My grandfather, blessed memory, used to say that it was his dream to be able to introduce 10,000 Jews to Torah. Big dreams, big numbers. I feel maybe as a, a scion or an heir to uh, to him and to his legacy, I do feel like it's his merit and it's his example. But the idea of, of reaching big numbers of people and trying to impact and to, and to spread and to educate and to inspire and to inform Torah to the masses, I do believe, thank God, that I've had tremendous, tremendous success along the way. So my first thank you goes to the Almighty. I want to make a special mention to the people who always believed in me. Of course, my parents, uh, my grandfather, like I've mentioned. I had the great fortune to get a blessing from him two days before he passed. He was in the hospital. It was Pesach. And I had the great fortune of spending Pesach with him, spending the Seder night with him, just me and him in a room. There were actually two other people in this hospital room in Jerusalem. But it's one of the most transformative events of my life. I'm sitting there. My grandfather's in tremendous pain. He's in and out of lucidity. And I remember at three in the morning, I was just exasperated with all the, just the experience and the tension of, of being there in the hospital with him. I sat down on the floor. He was sitting on a bed. And I said to him, Saba, tenli bracha. Saba, my grandfather, give me a blessing. He put his hand on my head and he said, Tilmad Chumash Tov, learn Chumash, learn the Torah well, study Mishnah well, and study Talmud well. I attribute whatever I have accomplished to him and to his merit and to the merit of my other illustrious antecedents. I also want to mention my oldest brother, Eli, and his wife, Malki. These are absolute legendary people. They took me under their wings and helped guide me through some very difficult times. And also, I want to thank my brother, Rabbi Ari Wolby, for always being a believer in me from day one. I just want to thank my family, my wife, Chaya, for being my partner in everything. And I want to mention the Almighty's sweetest creations, my children, Akiva, Yehoshua, Miriam, Shlomo, Yitzi, and Rivka. And of course, I want to thank the audience. I want to thank you. The staggering investment of time that y'all have cumulatively given to me. And I do truly believe that these people, these listeners, were like a family. And there's been so many of you that I've gotten the great honor to know personally. I've exchanged thousands of emails. I've spoken on the phone to dozens, dozens, if not hundreds of y'all personally met many of you became great friends 
to a lot of you, and I'm not going to mention anyone's names. I don't want to mention anyone's names without their permission. But it's been an honor of a lifetime, and I want to say thank you. And finally, I want to thank my investors who bought shares in our work. As you know, Torch is a nonprofit organization. But unlike other nonprofit organizations, we don't exactly have a fixed source of funding. There's no membership. There's no grants. Our organization exists only thanks to the generosity of people like you, the people who enjoy our programming and who want to invest their charity dollars partnering with us in doing what we want to do. And I want to say this clearly. Without the donors, I don't imagine I would be selling shoes but I probably would be selling cabinets or mortgages or something like that. So this achievement is not my achievement. It's not Torch's achievement. It's the personal accomplishment of all of us. And it means so much to me to have you as listeners and as friends. And there's something incredibly gratifying and humbling when y'all choose to support my work and the great work of our organization, Torch. So far, there have been 220 unique podcast-only donors to our organization. Again, these people not from Houston. Their connection to Torch was created via the podcasts. The median gift has been around $100. But many of y'all have given significantly more. $500, $1,000, $3,600, $5,000, even $10,000 to support the great work that we do here. Some people, of course, have decided that they want to be with us week by week, month by month, donating on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. I deeply appreciate each and every person who partners with me, who partners with us. And I want to say publicly, and without any ambiguity, those who have sponsored and donated and enabled and facilitated this incredible explosion of Torah, are partners in its merits. How exactly the rewards are going to be allocated, that's a question I'm going to leave up to God. He'll resolve it. But everyone who has contributed has a portion. And I know from these statistics that only a fraction of y'all have reached out in any way, an email, a donation, And I deeply appreciate you whether you've reached out or not. But I want to say, and I want to be careful not to be too presumptuous, but I want to inform you that shares for the next million downloads, please God, are on sale now. Torchweb.org forward slash support. And there's a, a link you could click if you wanted to support the podcasts. In every one of my more than 900 episodes, there's a link to donate in the description of your podcast. Again, I don't want to take anything for granted, but based upon the tremendous response to the podcast and the incredible momentum that they have, we hope and pray that this will continue. This tremendous blessing with the help of the Almighty, with the support of our partners, it'll continue and it will grow. And one more final thank you before I sign off here. I want to thank the podcast ambassadors. I've never spent a dollar on marketing And the only way people know about this is either because they have happened to have found it on their podcast app, but there's also been a lot of word of mouth recommendations where people say, you know what, I enjoy it, and I want to spread that on words. 
everyone that says to their friend, hey, check out this podcast, if the new person becomes a listener, you too get a slice of that merit. So share it with a friend, support our good work, and thanks a million. I hope and pray, please God, to be able to share with you thanks two million, thanks three million, thanks six million. Hope to share those messages with you in the months and years to come. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your generosity. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Don't be shy to reach out. Thank you.